Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. Forgiven people forgive people. But if that is ever to happen, if our big idea today is ever to happen in your life, in my life, we need to soak in our call to worship this morning, which came from Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. So I want to read that again so that you understand how the big idea can happen in your life. It's only as we break out in the hives of Micah 7 that we will be able to forgive other people. So listen to what the prophet Micah says. As he closes his sermon out, he points to how kind, how merciful, how forgiving God is. And if you struggle to forgive someone in your life, like we all do, listen to these words, bask in these words, marinate in these words, ask the Holy Spirit to really push these words down into the deepest, darkest crevices of your heart where you have bitterness and unforgiveness and anger, maybe even hatred, and pray that the Spirit works in you so that you can forgive others, so that you can be free and not be enslaved to bitterness and anger eating away at you like a cancer. No one should have to live like that. No Christian should have to live like that. We want to be free. So listen to these words. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression For the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. Forgiven people forgive. Forgive people. And if that's going to happen in your life, Micah 7 has got to get into your pores. you got to rub it in deep. Sinners who are forgiven by Jesus are called by Jesus, the one who forgives them of their sins, to go and forgive other sinners. As Paul says in Colossians 3.13, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that it will be easy to forgive. And if you've tried to forgive someone in your life that has offended you and hurt you, you know sometimes that is hard. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Depending on the nature of the offense, depending on the depth of the relationship, it may be extremely difficult and possibly downright impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in your heart. We'll talk a little bit more about those scenarios as we go along. But turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to see Paul do what he encouraged the Colossian church to do, and it's what he's encouraging the Corinthian church to do, and it's this, forgive. Paul will actually do what he encourages other people to do. He will forgive a man who was dragging his name through the dirt. A man who was running around the church at Corinth and talking bad about Paul, slandering him, trying to stir up strife and division. And Paul is going to say, you know what? I forgive him. You should forgive him too. Understand this. Paul had numerous 
people, numerous enemies who were determined to criticize his every move. They criticized every decision he made. They criticized his philosophy of ministry. They criticized his preaching. They criticized how he pastored. You name it. It was critique, critique, critique. And so as these people began emailing and texting other church members, the Corinthian church began to lose confidence in Paul's apostolic credentials. There was a smear campaign going on in this church. And there was one guy in particular that was giving Paul a lot of grief, stirring up trouble, and threatening the very health of this church. But Paul knows that even though haters are going to hate, this is still true. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. Forgiven sinners gonna forgive sinners. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, hear the word of the Lord. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So here's what's going on. This is why Paul sent this tear-filled letter before he wrote 2 Corinthians to this church. There was some guy in the Corinthian church who had been in some unrepentant sin. We don't know who he was. We don't know what the sin was exactly. We can take a guess, and I will. Some scholars think it's the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was involved in this very inappropriate relationship. You can read about it. Paul said, man, even the world doesn't do that kind of stuff, and you guys are boasting about it? Some people think it's the man in 1 Corinthians 5. Maybe it was. I personally think it was a man who had bought into the lies of the false apostles, the super apostles, who uh, had invaded the church at Corinth, and this man was believing their lies and began publicly undermining Paul's ministry and apostleship. But what is amazing about the Apostle Paul here is that he doesn't even mention the guy's name right here. He could have mentioned his name, and that would have been expected, but Paul never even mentions his name because Paul knows this letter is going to be read before the entire church. And since this man, as we'll see in a moment, since this man repented of his sin, Paul wants to spare him some public humiliation. So he doesn't even mention his name. How gracious of Paul. How merciful when he was wronged. He never mentions this guy's name. Even though this guy was going around always mentioning Paul's name, always critiquing Paul, slandering Paul, gossiping about Paul. Listen, it takes a depth of maturity and growth to do what Paul does here. It takes a settled rest in the gospel to not pay someone back. For Paul... The two names that are the most important when talking about sin in the church are these. Jesus and the the devil, Satan. Those are the only two names that Paul mentions in this passage. Why? Because we're either in line with Jesus, on team Jesus, working and living in a church to bring glory to Jesus, or we're on the devil's team. In the way that we treat one another In church, in our relationships, how we act in the church, we're either on team Jesus 
or we're on team Satan. Let that sink in for a moment. We're either in line with Jesus or the devil in how we treat one another and how we act in the church. But it doesn't matter who this man was or what he did. The details really don't matter. What matters in this passage is, number one, the glory of God, obviously. is God's glory to be seen through this church. Number one priority, priority in a church, God's glory. Number two, how the church itself would be affected by this man's sin. And then number three, how the Corinthians responded to this man's sin. Paul has been hurt by this man's actions. He acknowledges that. Even though Paul was being undermined by this man, he is quick to say, hey, I'm not the only one hurt here. The whole church body has been affected by this man when he was going around and doing and saying whatever he was about Paul. Paul's saying, I'm not the only one that's been infected. He's, he's actually affected all of us. And so understand this, Grace. When someone in a church is involved in serious sin, unrepentant sin, it affects the whole church body. Not just that small group. It affects the entire church body. Sin affects us all. The entire church body because we're one body, we're one family. There's no neutral ground here. When there are accusations and grumblings against the leadership of a church, and that's the specific context here. When there are accusations and grumblings against the leadership of a church, it hurts the whole church. It doesn't matter if you're talking with a guy at Starbucks about the leadership, it still affects and hurts the entire church body. Not just the leadership. When people grumble about the leadership of a church, they aren't just hurting the leadership. They are hurting and inflicting pain on the entire church body. That's the context here. But broadly speaking, any kind of division in a church where people are mumbling and grumbling hurts the entire church body, not just those directly involved. Not only that, God is not glorified in all of that drama. And that's why we exist, is to bring God glory. Not to grumble and puff up ourselves or puff up, puff up our own thoughts. Well, that's what Paul is saying here in verse 5. The whole church has been affected by this man's sin. But then Paul will go on to talk about how the church should respond to this man. Look at verse 6. For such a one, notice he didn't mention his name, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the ball is now in their court. They have to complete the process of church discipline that they began. And that involves in forgiving and welcoming this man back into the church body with open arms. Now, we're not surely not, not sure exactly what was said to this man by the church, but at the very least we can say that he was confronted in his sin. 
Did they actually do formal church discipline and excommunicate this man and sever fellowship with this man? Or did he just respond to their first rebuke? We don't know. But before we go any further, let's answer a question in case you don't know what I'm talking about. What is church discipline? What do I mean when I say that? Church discipline is where a church body deals with hardened, unrepentant sin in a member of the church. Now, there's a distinction here between formal church discipline versus all of the one-anothering that we're called to do in Scripture, where we love each other and confront each other and challenge each other if need be. Formal church discipline is different from the church doing all of the regular one another's that Scripture calls us to do. Formal church discipline of an unrepentant church member is usually a long process whereby the church member is lovingly confronted and called to repent of their actions. And after a while, if that person flat out refuses to repent... Then the elders, in our case here at Grace, it's the elders per our constitution and bylaws, it's the elders' responsibility to discipline church members. The elders will exercise their right to excommunicate and the church will cease fellowship with that member until their heart changes and they repent. The goal is always restoration, motivated by love, to keep the unity of the church body. That's a brief description of that process. Paul actually explains it in more detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But what might bring about church discipline? D.A. Carson says there are three things that necessitate church discipline. Number one, major moral issues. Number two, major doctrinal issues. And number three, major lawlessness characterized by divisiveness. Church discipline does not occur because there is sin in a church, because there will always be sin in churches, because guess who the members of a church are? Sinners. We sin all the time. We all sin all the time. Church discipline, however, occurs when there is a member of a church who is hard-hearted and refuses to give up their darling sins and their beloved idols and their golden calves, whatever they are. They know deep down, whether they admit it or not, they know deep down that whatever they are doing is wrong and that it goes against Scripture, it goes against God's Word, and yet... They refuse to stop. But what's the purpose of church discipline? Jonathan Lehman says this. Church discipline has at least five purposes. Number one, first, discipline aims to expose. Sin, like cancer, loves to hide. Discipline exposes the cancer so that it might be cut out quickly. Second, discipline aims to warn. A church does not enact God's judgment through discipline. Rather, it stages a small play that pictures the great judgment to come. Third, it aims to save. Churches pursue discipline when they see a member taking the path toward death and none of their pleading and arm-waving causes the person to turn around. It's the device of last resort. Fourth, 
discipline aims to protect. Just as cancer spreads from one cell to another, so sin quickly spreads from one person to another. And fifth, it aims to present a good witness for Jesus. Church discipline, strange to say, is actually good for non-Christians because it helps to preserve the attractive distinctiveness of God's people. Church discipline should occur when someone's behavior in the church de-glorifies God's name. And number two, jeopardizes the gospel and jeopardizes the safety of the church and jeopardizes the safety of the gospel culture that that church has created. Someone said it this way, when a sinner is repentant, the elders should protect that sinner from the church. When a sinner is defiant, the elders should protect the church from that sinner. So when a church member is defiant like that, the elders should protect the church from that person, from their sin, from their actions. They protect the church from this individual and the cancer that they are spreading through their rebellion. They protect the church culture from that cancer. And they plead with the person to repent. And they wave their arms and they say, you're going to drive off the cliff. Stop. Turn the car around. And after some time, they may even have to do formal church discipline on this church member. That's how they protect the church from that individual. But what happens when the elders and other church members call them out of their sin and they repent? Or let's say they even do formal church discipline on this church member and that church member repents. What then? We welcome them back with open arms. We forgive them. And we welcome them back into, hopefully, the gospel culture that we have created in that church. When a sinner is repentant, the elders should repent protect that sinner from the church if the church gets ugly with them. If the church refuses to forgive them, then it's the elder's job to protect that person from these cranky people who are prideful and don't want to extend forgiveness. The goal in all of this is to make the church, is not to make the church a safe place for sin to run wild. We don't want our churches to be places where we brag about our sins And refuse to repent. Our goal is to make our church a safe place for confession of sin. A safe place for repentance. We don't want people to be free to flaunt their sins here. But we do want to make grace a safe place where people can confess their sins freely. Without being judged. Without having somebody raise their eyebrow. Without having somebody say, hmm. That's what Paul's tear-filled letter to the Corinthians challenged the Corinthians to do. They called this guy out who was causing drama, spreading the cancer of sin, and they were waving their arms and yelling at him to stop because if if you will, he was driving his car off a cliff. And guess what? All of their arm-waving worked. This guy listened. He slammed on the brakes, turned his car around. He repented. But there were still some people there who were giving him the cold shoulder and being standoffish. They were not forgiving him, not welcoming him back into fellowship. And so Paul says that the punishment by the majority was enough. And they should turn and forgive and comfort him. 
And if they don't do that, welcome him back and reaffirm their love for him and comfort him. Paul says in verse 7, the man may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The Greek is comfort him lest somehow such a person be swallowed up by excessive grief. The idea here is that he will be swallowed up alive by sorrow, by shame, by disgrace. He'll be overwhelmed. And that's not the point of church discipline. The point of church discipline is not to grab somebody by the back of the head and rub their nose in their sin. The point is to welcome them back with open arms. Say you are loved and forgiven here because Jesus loves and forgives sinners like all of us. The point is to see repentance and restoration take place. Remember, forgiven sinners forgive sinners. Forgiven people forgive people. But that doesn't mean that forgiveness is easy. D.A. Carson said, Some sins have such complex tentacles that it is not surprising if solutions undertaken by repentant sinners are messy as well. Forgiveness is not easy, and the steps and solutions to make things right may be very messy. Just because you forgive someone does not mean that you have to be best friends with them. Depending on the nature of the offense, depending on the depth of the relationship, you might not ever be able to have them over for dinner. For instance, with everything happening with the Me Too movement and the Church Too movements, it might not be prudent to have an abuser over for dinner. You can forgive someone, but that does not mean that you have to be BFFs. Some sins have such complex tentacles that it is not surprising if solutions undertaken by repentant sinners are messy as well. It's not surprising if part of the solutions undertaken include even restitution of some kind or justice. Forgiveness does not mean that you just let an abuser go free. Justice should be served. An abuser might just get prison time. When we talk about forgiveness, we're not saying forgive the abuser and let him off scot-free. No, that man or woman might need to spend time in prison because of the nature of their sin towards another individual. You know what I'm talking about. There are consequences to sin. And it's not surprising that the solution might be I forgive him, but I never want to see my abuser face to face again. And that's okay. Forgiveness in the case of some form of abuse, like like has been highlighted in the last few years, does not mean that you have to invite the abuser into your life. Forgiveness does not mean that you start a podcast together. Forgiveness is not easy. And you are going to need the Holy Spirit's help in order to do it. So what Paul is getting at here in 2 Corinthians is that the goal of church discipline is always restoration to the church body and forgiveness. And so discipline should produce sorrow in the person's heart. And then if the person is led from their sorrow to repentance, the church comes quickly to reaffirm their love and then restore the person. 
But if a church restrains their affections, it will be devastating for the one disciplined. And Paul says they might be swallowed up alive by excessive sorrow. Paul is calling the Corinthians to come alongside this man and comfort him. It's the same word that we saw earlier in chapter 1. He's calling on this church to come alongside this man to strengthen him, encourage him in the gospel, otherwise he will be swallowed up alive. Like John Calvin said, whenever we fail to comfort those that are moved to a sincere confession of their sin, we play into Satan's hands. And that's exactly what Paul says next. Look at verse 9. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul's calling this church to reaffirm their love for this man. He wrote the painful letter before 2 Corinthians to see if they would be obedient with church discipline, which they were. But Paul wants them to be obedient and finish the process that they started. They need to complete the process by forgiving this man, welcoming him back with open arms. Paul says, I have forgiven the man. Now you need to follow through with obedience and you need to reaffirm your love for him too. That means that sometimes you need to reassure someone that you forgive them. You need to go out of your way to avoid cold shoulders. You need to free them possibly again and again and again. That's what Paul is telling them. Why? Because Paul knows our enemy, the devil. And he knows how Satan uses shame and guilt to paralyze us. The devil loves to see people swallowed up with sorrow. Satan's designs are to destroy the mutual forgiveness and love and unity that is supposed to characterize God's church. Satan loves division. He thrives on it. You know who loves 2020? Because no no one loves 2020, I don't think. God does because he's sovereign. You know who who loves 2020? The devil He's just sitting back eating his popcorn and saying, I love this because he has caused division everywhere. The Republicans are divided. The Democrats are divided. Churches are divided. Families are divided. And the devil is just sitting back and loving this because he loves division. It means so much to him. It means so much to him to see Christians in a church family fighting with one another, gnawing and gossiping and slandering. He loves it. He thrives on it. So Paul is letting the Corinthian church know that Satan is at work to see unity in their church destroyed. Satan is always scheming to cause division in a church family. And it usually doesn't happen with like a big explosion. It's a lot of about people. That's how he destroys churches. He doesn't come in and like set a bomb off. He just has people complain, grumble. Get this, Grace. Satan has designs. He has plans. He has schemes. He has strategies for our church. He wants to see grace divided. 
He wants to see us fighting. He wants to destroy us, especially because we're a gospel-centered church on the central coast of California, one of the hardest places to do gospel ministry in America. We're in the top 10 places of the hardest post-Christian places to do ministry. He wants to see us crash and burn. He does not like what we're doing here. He will do anything to stop it. And he might even start by just going, pss, 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 pss. he wants to see us fighting. He wants to destroy us. So Grace, listen to me. Stay alert. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Protect it. Ask the Holy Spirit to clog your ears to murmuring and grumbling and complaining. Guard your heart because Proverbs tells us your life flows out of that. And if the cancer of mumbling and grumbling and complaining gets into your heart, it's going to flood out into your life. Let's not play into the devil's game. Let's keep our eyes on the cross. Keep them on Jesus. Let's fight sin so that the glory of Jesus is seen and felt in our city through this church. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that if they don't restore this man, then they have played right into what Satan wants to happen. Paul is not ignorant about how the devil works. He knows that Satan is working overtime to get this church to hang on to their hurts and to hang on to bitterness. Bitterness grows fast. It's like a weed. Man, it just takes off. And Paul knows that if they continue in this way, then they will prove that they indeed have been duped by Satan himself. Listen, when we harbor unforgiveness, when we coddle it and protect it and stroke it in our hearts, and when we hang on to bitterness, we show that we have united our interests with Satan's interests. Think about that. That's sobering, isn't it? When we harbor unforgiveness, when we hang on tight-fisted to bitterness, we show that we have actually united our hearts and our interests to Satan's heart, to Satan's interests. When we withhold forgiveness from one another, we show that we have been duped by the devil. Who woke up today wanting to be duped by the devil? Who wants any of that in the church body? Listen, you can have right doctrine. You can have right belief. You can have right theology and still be duped by Satan. You can. You can check off conservative theology and say, I line up with all these conservative people. And you can still be duped by Satan. That's sobering. Let that sink in. But notice that Paul uses the phrase here, in the presence of Christ, to remind the Corinthians why they need to forgive. In fact, the Greek here in verse 10 is, in the face of Christ. Not just the presence of Christ, in the face of Christ. He's telling them that they are being watched by Jesus. He is present with them when they forgive, when they restore, when they reaffirm their love for this man. And because Jesus is with us, present because he's watching us because his face is here if you will then this is true forgiven sinners forgive sinners 
Forgiven people forgive people when they see the face of Christ. It's because of the gospel that we forgive. It's because God has forgiven us that we forgive. It's because Jesus can't remember our sins that we offer grace to those who have wronged us. Scott Saul says, you can't out the grace of God and you shouldn't be able to out the grace of the church either. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's concerned with how this church treats this repentant brother. He's showing us what kind of church we need to be when people wreck their lives. He's concerned about church culture, the environment that wayward sinners come home to. Let me ask you, what kind of church should we be to someone who has fallen and really messed up their life? What kind of church should we be to someone who has totally ruined their life through sin? Answer, the kind of church that we would want if we fell and seriously messed up our life. What kind of Christian should you be to someone who has sinned and wrecked their life? The kind of Christian that you would want to embrace you if you sinned and wrecked your life. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's talking about gospel culture. The problem that plagues many Christians and many churches is that they have right doctrine, but that doctrine hasn't shaped the culture of their church. You can have right theology. You can have right doctrine. You can have right beliefs. But you can also have a church culture that denies your right doctrine, theology, and beliefs. You can talk about forgiveness and grace, but not extend forgiveness and grace. The doctrine of a church can be right, correct, but the culture and environment of that church can deny that doctrine. Think about that. The doctrine of a church can be right, but the culture of that church can deny that doctrine. It can talk about grace, but lack grace. It can talk about forgiveness, but not demonstrate forgiveness. And so relationships, our relationships with one another, they are the true test for what we believe. Our relationships with one another are the true test for what we believe, not merely our statement of faith. Now, our statement of faith is important. It's important for us to express what we believe. It's very important. But our relationships are the true test for what we really believe. You have to have both. You have to have gospel on paper, what you believe, your statement of faith, and then gospel in partnership with one another. Gospel beliefs and gospel community. You have to have both for a church to truly thrive. So when the gospel, which is bad news, bad news, boy, that's heresy, isn't it? When the gospel, which is good news for bad people, when it is the main focus of a church, it creates the gospel culture that the church needs. It creates this environment of freedom and forgiveness. When the gospel is the main thing of all of our ministries, it it helps create this kind of culture where Jesus is worshipped and Jesus is adored, where sins are freely confessed, where relationships are reconciled, where people are forgiven, where money is no longer king, where the races come together in unity, and where laughter 
and dancing and smiling is normal. So that we say, smiling's my favorite. That's what the gospel does because the gospel is the power of God. And in this kind of gospel environment, people then feel set free and they feel safe enough to admit their real problems. Openness becomes normal. Forgiveness is normal. Repentance becomes the norm. I hope you feel that here at Grace. I hope you have been ministered to here. I hope that someone here has forgiven you. I hope you have seen and experienced God's grace here. I hope you feel that here at Grace. I hope you feel that you're safe here. That this is a safe place for you to admit your weaknesses, your struggles, your sins, because that's what we want. And who wouldn't thrive in such an environment? That means then we need multiple exposures to the gospel week after week. We need the Holy Spirit rubbing the finished work of Jesus into our pores. No condemnation, no shaming, no finger pointing, no embarrassment, no bitterness, no manipulation, no trying to fix one another, but instead respect and sympathy and care, concern and understanding, compassion, comfort, forgiveness. We want grace to be a church where we're free to unload our burdens on one another and not have people roll their eyes or raise their eyebrow or tell us to you need to get your act together. A church where we have nothing to fear, no pressure. I mean, imagine that. Who wouldn't grow and thrive in that kind of environment? We want this church to be a safe place where you can come and say this. Tell me the gospel story again. I blew it this week, and I desperately need to hear it again. Tell me once again about my Savior Jesus, how He died for my sins, how He gives me His righteousness. Tell me once again how I'm blameless in God's eyes, even though I don't feel it. Tell me that no matter how bad I'll ever be, Jesus will not stop loving me. Tell me how He's transforming me and changing me, and tell me how He's coming back one day to make everything new. Who wouldn't thrive in that kind of community? How could God's glory be diminished if this is the kind of church family we are? So let's keep talking about God's grace. And let's be kind to one another. And let's give the benefit of the doubt to one another. How about that? Give the benefit of the doubt. Let's come alongside and comfort one another. Encourage one another. Let's not gossip. Let's not grumble. Let's not play into Satan's hand. Let's be quick to admit our sins and our failures. And let's forgive others because God forgives us, okay? And when we do that, when we create that kind of church culture, God is mightily glorified. And isn't that the point? Isn't that the point of church? That Jesus would be glorified. Let's do that. Jesus, thank you for saving sinners and choosing to display your glory, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, to the spiritual realm. Thank you for using messy people, sinful, selfish people, to show your glory to a watching world. Make us a safe place here. Make grace a safe place, Lord. 
where we can confess our sins and repent and kill them and mortify them and run from them. Make us a place where people grow and mature like Paul who doesn't retaliate. Make us a church who's mature enough, who rests in the gospel so much that we don't have to get revenge. Make us a church who doesn't gossip and slander and mumble and grumble and complain. Make us a church who gives the benefit of the doubt to one another, Lord. Thank you for the work that you're doing here through this church on the Central Coast. All glory goes to you. All glory goes to your gospel because it's changing people's lives. And so we want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified here through everything that we do. But we need your help to do it. Holy Spirit, help us to forgive other people because you have forgiven us. We are utterly dependent upon you, Holy Spirit. Come and rub Micah chapter 7 into our heart deep, deep, so that we forgive, so people are set free, and so that you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.